Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Dr. Alois Alzheimer was a German psychiatrist and neuropathologist who is credited with discovering the first case of what was called back then pre-senile dementia. While performing a research autopsy in 1906, he observed changes in brain tissue of a woman who had died of what at the time was considered an unusual mental illness. Her symptoms included, but were not limited to, memory loss and language problems and unpredictable behavior. During the autopsy, Alzheimer found abnormal clumps and fibers in her brain tissue. Since then, researchers have found the progressive decline of memory, thinking, and motor skills is linked to the loss of connection between the neurons in patients' brains. In most patients, the symptoms first appear in their mid-60s. Alzheimer's disease is currently ranked as the sixth leading cause of death in our country and believed to have infected more than 5.5 million Americans. One of the tragic results of Alzheimer's disease is when patients gradually forget who their loved ones are. And, on the other side of the coin, it's also painful for the loved ones to be forgotten by the Alzheimer's patient. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, there will be times when it feels like he has Alzheimer's disease. His memory appears to have declined, He is no longer speaking, and his behavior has become unpredictable. To feel forgotten by God, the God who loves you more than anyone else in the universe, it can be one of the most painful experiences a believer can have. But thankfully, David wrote about his own experience with this, of feeling forgotten by God, and he provides some wisdom for us in Psalm 22. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm chapter 22 and to pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder that you received this morning. And I also want to just uh, plead with you to not do what a younger Carrie Knack would have done in a sermon like this. A younger, more proud Carrie Knack would have sat there and went, oh man, this doesn't apply to me. And I would have not taken out my sermon notes, and I probably would not have opened my Bible. But let me just tell you, as an older Carrie Knack, who has gone through a season of feeling like God had forgotten me, you want to open your Bible. You need to, and you need to take notes. And men, I'm challenging you again today to be the spiritual leaders of your home and do that for your family, your girlfriend, or your wife. So please hear my heart today. Here is the big idea 
And that is this, the Lord always remembers you because he's not capable of forgetting you. The Lord always remembers you because he's not capable of forgetting you. The Psalms are a prayer journal for some of the godliest people who have ever walked on earth. Its pages are filled with prayers and worship songs written by believers who were hurting, celebrating, suffering, thriving, lonely, or befriended, but they still trusted God and hoped in Him. Although David doesn't mention where or when he was in the superscript of this psalm like he does other times, it's clear that he is struggling, he is suffering. Psalm 22 is called a lament psalm because it's a complaint mixed with a desperate cry for help. Lament psalms basically say, my life stinks, God doesn't care, and I just want to die. David had previously written about the agony of waiting on God in Psalm 13. But this psalm, Psalm 22, is about what to do when you've waited on God for so long that you feel like he's forgotten you. And so, if you would look at the text with me in Psalm 22, as I read the first couple of verses, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by the day, but you don't, you don't answer. And by night I find no rest. Let me just stop there and say these first two verses are packed with a trainload of truth. And here's the first one on your outline. All believers will experience the silence of God. If you have not already, trust me, you will. All believers will experience the silence of God. When David says in verse 1, my God, my God, notice the possessive pronoun my. It definitely indicates a personal relationship. Next, he invokes a particular name of God, Elohim, in the Hebrew text. The Lord goes by several different names in the Old Testament, each describing a different facet of his character. And the name David uses here gives us some insight into what he was thinking when he wrote this. It, in this case, Elohim, it was the name that described God's strength and power. I think David was trying to tell the Lord, my God of strength and power, you have left me. When I need your strength and power, because my enemies are oppressing me. Why have you left me? You could destroy my enemies by simply moving your pinky toe a millimeter. How come you haven't? So he says also in verse 1, why have you forsaken me? Forsake comes from the Hebrew word that means to leave behind, to abandon or desert. It reminds me of an experience I had a few times as a little child when I'd go shopping with my mom. I would sometimes wander off uh, while we were at the women's clothing store at the mall and 
she'd be thumbing through racks of clothes, and of course I was bored out of my mind, and I'd go exploring, and I'd wander off a little bit, and then come back to where I last saw her, expecting her to still be there, but she'd moved on to another rack of clothes. And for a brief moment, my chest would tighten, and I'd get anxious, fearing I'd been left behind. Boy, was I relieved when I would walk a little further and I'd see that mom hadn't left. She was just the next aisle over. But that's, I think, what David was feeling, except, except this is important. He's saying he's not the one who left. He's saying, God, you did. This time, I'm not the one, Lord. I stayed. You left. You've always been here before. But now you're not. How come? Now, verse 1 sounds familiar to you. It's because this is what Jesus prayed while hanging on the cross on Good Friday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 not only describes David being mocked by his enemies and his bones being put out of joint and having an unbearable thirst and the division of his clothing by his enemies, but it also eerily foretells the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. For this reason, Psalm 22 is not only called a lament, but it's also called a messianic psalm. Well, why is this important? I, I think it's important because if Jesus felt forgotten by his Father, shouldn't we expect to feel the same from time to time? I mean, Jesus quoting this psalm should encourage us when we experience seasons of silence in our walk with the Lord because it means He can sympathize with us. He understands what it means, what, how it feels when it seems as though God has abandoned you. And so David, as he's writing out his prayer to the Lord in verse 2, he says, I cry by day. He's he's." He's weeping all day, praying to the Lord, come through, I need you to show up with your strength and power. And then he says, I'm doing it at night too. So much so that he's not getting sleep. And yet he gets no answer. Imagine telephoning a close friend who you always have been able to count on. But the phone just rings and rings and rings and they never pick up. Or leaving voicemails with a loved one at a time when you needed them most, but they never call you back. And you'd have that feeling of anxiety of, you know, they used to call me back. How come they haven't called me back yet? And I really need to talk to them. That's how, what David was feeling. What David experienced was what theologians have termed the dark night of the soul. The phrase originated in a famous poem written by the 16th century Spanish priest, St. John of the Cross. In the poem, St. John writes this, The dark night of the soul. In this time of dryness, spiritual people undergo great trials. They believe that spiritual blessings are a thing of the past and that God has abandoned them. This certainly raises a fair question. Why does God sometimes go silent or hide his face from his children? 
Well, after giving this some thought this week, here are some reasons that come to mind. Uh, the first is it, it, it makes us pray longer and harder for things. Seasons of silence can build our prayer muscles. We, we learn to pray deeper and more sincerely for what we need. Another reason is it makes us better listeners. When a person uh, we're talking to uh, remains silent for a long time, uh, well, anyone with any emotional or relational intelligence would eventually go, you know, you haven't said anything in a while. Uh, I need to lean in and listen. We eventually realize we're doing all the talking and we're not listening. Silence from God teaches us to lean in more closely to the Lord and to be more eager to hear from Him. And as you've heard me say recently, the Lord is, He's like that teacher in middle school who will not compete with the noise of her classmates, her, excuse me, her students. She will wait until they're quiet to speak. And the Lord, I think, is the same way. Another reason why he goes silent is that it makes us more grateful. When we feel like we've lost God's presence in our life, it makes us that much more grateful when we get it back or get the feeling of it back. And when we have to persevere in prayer for a long time, we're so much more grateful for the answer to our prayers when it comes than we would have been if the Lord had just been like a vending machine and given us what we wanted right away. Prayers that have been answered after years of going to the throne are so much sweeter, so much more precious when they're answered after years of pressing into the Lord. And another reason why he might go silent is it weans us from his constant guidance. Like a, like a parent teaching their child to ride a bike without training wheels, the Lord will sometimes give us a little distance so we, we learn to walk without him always having to hold our hand. Now, I, should, I want to clarify something. His silence does not mean we've been forgotten. And here are two reasons he can't forget you if you are his child. This is letter A and B on your outline. First of all, A, he promised not to. He promised not to forget you. Let this, let this verse here sink into your soul. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord never overpromises, and He cannot underdeliver. Only humans do that. And although there are many comforting promises in the Scriptures, few cover the many trials we will face, like Hebrews 13:5. The promise of God's constant presence can help us when we're afraid, when we're lonely, when we're facing temptation, failure, we're in pain, or much more. In fact, it's God's presence that David prays for in verses 11 and 19 of Psalm 22. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Next, the second reason he can't forget you if you are a child of his who knows his son Jesus Christ is that letter B, forgetting is something only humans do. Just ask, we cannot remember the names of everybody we meet 
The Lord cannot forget anybody he knows. Forgetting is something only people do. But remembering is something God always does. There wasn't enough room for me to put this verse on the keynote slide, uh, so I'll just read it to you, and you can highlight it in your Bible later. I would encourage you to do so. It's, it's uh, very encouraging. And that's uh, Isaiah 49, verses 14 and 16, where uh, the Lord, uh, speaking through Isaiah, trying to comfort the people of Israel who felt forgotten, says, uh, the Lord says this, can a, can a woman forget her nursing child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Well, no, of course not. But the Lord says, even, even these, though, they may forget. I mean, a mother might possibly forget her nursing child. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand, he said. This is another example, I think, of why we need to study God's character and other important doctrines in the Scriptures. Because it prevents us from doing bad theology or letting our emotions drive our theology. You see, because if, if God forgot us, He would no longer be omniscient, which means all-knowing. And because it would be... If he, if he forgot us, He would no longer be omnipresent, which means everywhere... It, all times. And that would be impossible because to be everywhere but to forget his children who are somewhere else is not possible. So understanding God's omniscience and his omnipresence from studying the scriptures, which are two doctrines about his character, refutes the feeling that he's forgotten me. So the Lord, he always remembers you because he's not capable of forgetting you. Or another way I would say it is to forget is human. But to never forget is divine. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. David continues to write this passionate, desperate prayer to the Lord. He says, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, and they trusted, and you delivered them. Verse 5, to you they cried, and they were crushed, and in you they trusted, and were not put to shame. Here's the next point on your outline. Number two, the second thing that David teaches us here is that the generations before you testify to God's faithfulness. The generations before you testify to God's faithfulness. Please notice in your Bibles how verses 3, 4, and 5 begin in contrast to verse 6. In verse 3, he says, Yet you, David's reflecting on God's holy character and envisions the Lord on his mighty throne, receiving the praises of Israel as they float up like incense. That's Revelation terminology there. Verse 4, he says, in you, next he's, he's recalling how his ancestors trusted in the Lord and eventually they were delivered, not disappointed. Verse 5, to you, the psalmist recalls how his predecessors prayed fervently to the Lord and they were not put to shame and they were not mocked by their enemies. And then verse 6, there's a transition or what I call a pivot in the text. But I am 
a worm. So, so verse 3, yet you, verse 4, in you, verse 5, to you, verse 6, but I am a worm. He chooses one of the lowest animals in the animal kingdom to vividly describe how he feels in contrast to God sitting on his high heavenly throne. So look at verse 5 again with me. To you they cried and they were rescued. David's reflecting on past work that was both comforting and conflicting to him. On, on the one hand, he's saying, Lord, you did amazing things in the past and I believe you can do them again. But also, I think in verse 5, he's saying, Lord, you answered them. How come you won't answer me? Like family photo albums that warm our hearts with good memories, the Psalms contain numerous examples of struggling saints in the present being encouraged by God's work in the past. This is because the saints in the scriptures believe that the Lord can take care of them, then he can certainly take care of me. And we too can find the same comfort. It means that no child of God from the past has entered heaven and said to the Lord, why did you forget me? And neither will you if you walk with his son Jesus Christ. Next, in verses 6 through 8, look at again the text with me so it can speak to your heart and leave an impression on your mind. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they, they make mouths at me, and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Here's number three on your outline. Suffering is not a sign of an abandonment. Suffering is not a sign of abandonment. David compares himself to one of the most helpless, powerless, ugliest creatures in all of creation. A worm. And dare I say, dirtiest as well. Worms have no rank in the animal kingdom. They live most of their short lifespan as prey, not predator. They are easily stepped on, crushed, or eaten at the bottom of the food chain. That's how low David felt. Verse 8, notice the salt on his wounds that David mentions here. His enemies were mocking his faith in the Lord. Just like a bunch of junior high schoolers on the playground at recess, making fun of his faith. <laughs> Let the Lord deliver you. Where's your God? And this just fuels the feelings of abandonment that he's experiencing. David wants God to show up to prove his enemies wrong. But God's not showing up. And so I think this is why he pens the words that he does in verse 11. Look down and skip down to verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. 
and there is none to help. Notice the contrast of far and near. Lord, be not far from me, because you feel far, but what's near me right now, what I can see and feel around me, is all kinds of trouble. I need that to, I need that to switch, Lord. I need the trouble to be far and you to be near. Did you notice how David equated his suffering with God being distant instead of close? Contrary to popular thinking, the Bible teaches that suffering is often a sign God is using you and near you. Perhaps the biggest issue that makes us feel abandoned by God is the reality of unanswered prayers. When we've been praying and praying and praying for something and the Lord doesn't answer, He doesn't answer, or He doesn't seem to answer or give us what we want, that makes us feel abandoned. So how do we interpret the reality of unanswered prayers? Here's six potential reasons for unanswered prayers. I know this is a lot, but I really hope this will help you, and I hope you'll save these notes so that when you're facing an unanswered prayer, uh, perhaps you've been on a string of hits, and just every prayer you've been asking the Lord for is getting answered. I just want you to know that role won't last, okay? And if you've figured out how to get on a streak like that, I want to talk to you after service because I need some help. So six potential reasons for unanswered prayers. Here's letter A. You may not know him. It's a, it's a hard question to ask, but it's a critical one. Do you know him? In Second in Chronicles 7.14, the Lord says to his people, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. The Lord didn't say, if any people. He said, my people. All the promises in Scripture regarding prayer are directed to those who have a relationship with the Lord through His Son, Jesus Christ. Just as you and I don't answer phone calls that show up as unknown caller on our smartphones, on the caller ID, the Lord does not answer prayers from those He does not know. Next, another reason for unanswered prayers, letter B, you may have wrong motives. So even though you may know the Lord, even though you may love the Lord, you may be walking with Him, James says in James 4.3 that uh, sometimes we don't see answers to prayer because we ask with selfish motives instead of being committed to God's will and God's glory. So are, are, are your prayers all about restoring your own comfort? Or just changing your spouse instead of changing you? Satisfying your selfish desires, maybe? Then I, I want to encourage you to start praying for things God wants for you. And you'll start seeing him move in surprising ways. Pastor and author F.B. Meyer, his ministry took place late 19th century, early 20th century. He once wrote this about prayer. He said, we have an irresistible argument when we plead for God's glory. Letter C, another reason for unanswered prayers. You may have unrepentant sin. 
In Psalm 66, 18, uh, the psalmist writes that if we have known sin, we have not confessed to the Lord, he will not hear our prayers. This is why it's important to keep short accounts with the Lord and to start out our prayers with confession. Uh, just as you wouldn't reward bad behavior by uh, giving your car keys to a rebellious teenager, so the Lord does not answer prayers of his children who do not take their sin seriously. Out of the goodness of his loving heart, the Lord will withhold answers to prayer so that we deal with the more serious issue of our sin. And then we deal with that first. So you may have unrepentant sin. Letter D, he may want something better for you. It sounds cliche. You've probably heard someone say that to you. Oh, don't worry, hang in there. The Lord just got something better. Well, that's true uh, in part. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul asked the Lord three times to remove an affliction he had. Paul called it a thorn in his flesh, meaning it was painful, it was annoying, he just wanted it to be gone. However, his request was refused because that affliction kept him humble and made him more dependent on the Lord. Kind of just refutes the, the myth that Paul got all his prayers answered. Right? Even Paul got told no. And that's because sometimes the Lord says, my no is better for you than your yes. And I don't like it, just like you don't like it. It's hard for us to accept because we think we know what's best for us. Well, at least I think I know what's best for me. I won't speak for you, but... And this is why, though, you've heard me say before that if you, if you leave the doctrine of progressive sanctification out of your theology, you will be continually disappointed when the Lord tries to make you more like his son instead of giving you what you want. That's, that's the back end of Romans 8.28. That's verse 29 that people don't like to quote. Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good for those who love him. And then verse 29 goes on to say, so that, and I'm paraphrasing, we might become more like his son. Letter E, what you want may not be God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is his hand on the steering wheel of time, guiding people and events to accomplish his overall plan for the world. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 15 to 18, King David fasted and prayed that the child that was born out of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba would be spared. But God said no and took the child's life. One of the many reasons for this is that God wanted David to never forget the effect that his sin had on others. Thus, your prayer for sunshine on your child's wedding day may be less important to the Lord than the rain being prayed for by a nearby farmer. Or your desperate prayer for God to delay your flight from taking off because you're running late may contradict the prayers of someone on the plane already that God has ordained to arrive at your destination on time. I know I get it. It's hard to think outside of our little world to think that there are other people praying for things that might contradict what we want. Or that the Lord 
wants to do things that contradict what we want. And so praying for a spouse, for example, might seem like it's God's will, but what if it's God's will for you to be single? Or at least single half of your life? Or praying for healing is great, but what if it's God's will that you not be healed and that you instead remain sick and glorify him in your sickness? Letter F, what you want may not be in God's timing. What you want may not be in God's timing. In John chapter 11, we find the famous verse in the Bible. It's often joked about being the shortest verse in the Bible. Two words, Jesus wept. What's happening in John 11 is his close friend Lazarus was dying. And instead of coming right away when he was requested by messenger, uh, he waited, Jesus waited three more days until Lazarus died. And so when the Lord shows up on the scene after Lazarus has been dead and buried for three days, Martha questions his goodness. Martha was Lazarus's brother. She says, Lord, if you would have gotten here sooner, my brother would not have died. But Jesus, in essence, says to her, and I'm just paraphrasing here for the sake of time, if I'd gotten here sooner, you wouldn't get to see what I'm about to do. And if you're familiar with the story, you'll remember that Jesus, his delay meant his friends got to see a resurrection instead of a healing. And so what you want may not be in God's timing. He may be saying, yes, but not yet. But regardless, even when your prayers seem unanswered, as hard as it is to believe, even when we don't feel it, the Lord always remembers you because he's not capable of forgetting you. If you would next look at the next section with me, excuse me, uh, verses 19 to 21. There are too many verses for me to cover in the time that we have together, so I'm just going to highlight some sections of the psalm. In verses 19 to 21, David says, But you, and there's another pivot, another pivot in the text, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me. In the horns of the wild oxen. Here's number four in your outline, the fourth thing that David teaches us. The Lord welcomes our requests when we feel forgotten. The Lord welcomes our requests when we feel forgotten. Notice, as I mentioned earlier, this second request for God's presence to be made known to him. Just as, as David does in verse 11, he cries out again, Do not be far off, Lord. Don't be distant from me. Don't shut me out. This man who is the only person in all of Scripture called by God, a man after God's own heart, felt forgotten by God. And yet, this man who was a man after God's own heart longs for the presence of his God. He knows that if God is near him, everything will be okay. 
In verse 19 also, I think it reveals how quickly the psalmist needs God to come through. Come, come quickly to my aid right now. It serves as a good reminder that it's better to ask in faith than to succumb to some kind of sovereign fatalism. Like, oh well, you know, God's sovereign, so it must be his will that I'm here. Why even ask that he get me out of here? Well, yeah, he is sovereign, and he did put you there. However, verse 19 shows us you, we can both trust in the Lord's timing and ask him to come quickly, because it, it may be his will to get you out of there. And he'll do what he so chooses. Verse 21, notice it says, You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. There are different views amongst Old Testament scholars on what David means here. It could mean that he's reminding God of some past deliverance as if to say, Do it again. Remember that one time you got me out of that one bind? I need you to show up and do it again. It also could mean... He's expressing confidence that God will deliver him in the future. As though it's already been done. And so the Lord welcomes our requests when we feel forgotten. Inspired by the Spirit, it's recorded in the canon of Scripture. Finally, look at verses 22 and 23. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. Here's number five. The Lord is worthy of our praise when we feel forgotten. He's still worthy of our praise when we feel forgotten. The rest of Psalm 22 follows the same pattern other laments, lament psalms do. Excuse me. They start with a desperate cry for help, and then usually followed by affectionate praise for what God's done or what he's about to do. A pretty typical pattern of lament psalms. It's important to note that he doesn't withhold worship from the Lord because of what he was going through or because God hadn't come through yet. Instead, he allows God's past faithfulness and God's present character and future promises to be the basis of his worship. So there's, no, there's none of this passive-aggressive behavior of, Lord, you know, you didn't answer the prayers for me this week, so I ain't going to church. Uh, take that. Or, Lord, I don't feel like going to church because you, you hadn't been good to me this week. You didn't, you didn't work all things together for my good so that it would be my good because I know what's best for me and my good. That's my own translation of Romans 8.28. So I'm going to make you suffer, Lord, by me not showing up at church. I'm not singing to you. But what's interesting to me is... Uh, and I hope you would start to see this, is that many of the richest praise songs that have ever been written and recorded were written by musicians who were wrestling with where God was or what he was doing in their lives. I 
I don't know if you know this about human sin nature, is that the sin nature does not sit down and write a song about trusting God in the desert when everything's going hunky-dory and awesome. Or that song that we, we sang earlier uh, by Pat Barrett, Better Than, from Psalm 63. Yeah. Again, humans are not capable of sitting down and writing something they don't struggle with. The lyrics are communicating what he has struggled with. Or, or the author of uh, Waymaker. The, the original author of that song, she, she, she most likely, I'm almost 100% sure, she found herself in a scenario where she needed God to make a way and that allowed her to write out her prayers to the Lord and then got put to music. But when God's always making a way for us and things are pretty clear and easy, those lyrics don't come usually to mind. So the Lord is still worthy of our praise when we feel forgotten. I'll talk about this in a minute in one of our applications. So what should we do now? What, what should we do having looked at Psalm 22 and come to grips with what David was struggling with? How do we respond to that. What is Psalm 22 calling us to do? Here's three applications that come to mind. I always want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit if there's another application he has personally for you. But here's the first of three I have. Expect your own seasons of silence. Expect your own seasons of silence. When I experienced my first season of silence with the Lord as a new believer, it just wrecked me. I was devastated. My first couple of years as a new believer, I, it just seemed like the Lord was working and just like a snowball going downhill. There was just momentum. I was seeing a lot of answers to prayer. He was speaking in my life nonstop. And then all of a sudden, it was like the phone line went dead. Everything came to a halt. And what I later learned was that I had become addicted to his activity in my life, but hadn't learned to trust him when he's quiet. And I wish somebody had told me this when I was a younger believer. It would have helped me greatly. So I'm telling you now. So that hopefully you won't be caught off guard like I was because you got your Bible open and you're taking good notes today. Sometimes the Lord just puts you in a corner for a season of silence. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. He just wants you to walk and grow and trust Him where you are. It could be for a few weeks. It could be a few months or even a few years. But expect that he'll use it. Next, second application that comes to mind is worship him for what he has done and what he will do. In other words, if you're struggling to worship him because of your present circumstances, then worship him for past activity in your life and future promises. Sometimes the best thing for your soul Monday through Friday is to turn on some worship music and start singing along. Doesn't matter what key, doesn't matter if you're off time. 
This is one of the reasons I put the songs that we're singing this morning in the worship folder, because one of those songs may minister to you, and I want you to take that thing home and add it to your Spotify playlist, or your Apple Music playlist, play it in the car, learn the lyrics, look them up online, because that song may help you on Wednesday when you get devastating news. Hearing scripture put to music can medicate the soul almost as good as the word itself. And there's just something mysterious and spiritual that happens when we make ourselves sing God's word when we don't feel like it. There's just something mysterious the Holy Spirit does that changes our thinking and our mood and our emotions. But you have to get over that first hump. You have to get past that hump of, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. And if you're discouraged on the weekend, the best thing you can do is wash your face and come to worship service so you can hear other people sing when you don't feel like singing. That will minister to your soul as well. And then go to your small group so you can be around other people who are fighting the good fight just like you. I know, these things are counterintuitive. Again, I don't feel like it. Well, you will take a significant step forward in your walk with the Lord when your emotions no longer lead your decisions. One reason the things I'm talking about in this application feel counterintuitive besides our inherited sin nature, is that the adversary wants to isolate you when you feel abandoned so he can finish extinguishing the remaining embers of your faith. So if you can be aware of that, put the worship music on. Come to church. Hear God's people sing so it can minister to you. Go to your Bible study, your small group, and hear other people share prayer requests and know that they're struggling because the adversary wants to tell you you're the only one that has this problem. There ain't nobody else in the whole world that has this problem you're struggling with. You are all by yourself. That's what he does. Or maybe it'll be in your small group that you hear, you hear some, some fellow group members Talk about an answered prayer that they, they've been praying for for a long time, and that just might encourage you to keep praying as well. But you can't hear it if you don't go. You can't hear that if you go, I don't feel like it, I ain't going, I'm mad at God, so I'm skipping church and skipping small group. Satan goes, yeah! Keep on, keeping on. Almost done with you. Don't want you getting encouraged. And once I'm done extinguishing your faith, I'm moving on to the next person who feels forgotten by God. Number three, study God's promises in the lives of older saints. The Holy Spirit may not always be speaking to you with personalized directions, but God's Spirit-inspired Word has already spoken. So lean on what God has already said in His Word. 
Charles Spurgeon says, the promises of God are like a check made payable to the believer with the intent of bestowing upon him some good, some good thing in God's timing. So it may be that the promise in Scripture for you has been post-dated. It's not going to be fulfilled yet for you. It may mean that somebody else, another believer, has another date on their check from the Lord. So learn the promises that God has made to you in his word. There, there's been a, an abundance of saints, though, also in church history who wrote about their struggles in the faith. That's why I mentioned learn about the lives of older saints. And again, don't do what a younger Carrie Knack did. Here's how stupid and prideful I was 10 years ago. I used to get frustrated at a pastor I served under who always talked about the lives of dead guys. I found it boring and irrelevant until I suffered, until I felt forgotten by God. So don't be like that, Carrie Nat. Because here's what I eventually ended up learning. Here's why that senior pastor that I served under, he was smarter than me. He was going and studying the biographies of some of the older saints like John Bunyan and Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon and Corey Tenboom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and C.S. Lewis and more because they had suffered and walked with God through the wilderness and he needed the encouragement just like I did. That they made it and they recorded what they learned through it. They all loved the Lord and they had to trust him in very difficult circumstances. Now, I know what you're thinking, you know, Pastor Carey, you've got a master's degree. I can't read hard books like that. Neither can I. That's why I have found online there are modernized versions that get rid of the old Victorian English, and they've been updated in the modern English to understand. So please don't think too highly of my reading level, okay? Thanks to technology, there are updated versions you can get in modern English that are easier to understand. Those are the versions I buy. Now, the senior pastor I served under 10 years ago, he bought the original versions and was able to understand the Victorian English, and that's why he's a lot smarter than me. So study God's promises in the lives of older saints. There are rich insights and rich encouragement you can find by reading, say, say a book by C.S. Lewis. And he, he wrote a, a precious book, and the title's escaping me right now, but after his wife died. I think it's called The Problem of Pain. I could be wrong there. But he wrote this book, and it's been a precious book that has helped so many widows and widowers in the last several decades. Understand what Lewis was going through as he wrestled with, why, God, did you take my spouse early? And if my memory serves me correct, Lewis married later in life. So it was, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for a wife. I got a wife. We were only married a couple years. She died. What's up, Lord? So study God's promises and the lives of older saints. Well, Dr. George Matheson was a respected minister who served the Lord in mid-19th century Scotland. When he was a young boy, he, he started to lose his eyesight. And with the help of his sisters, Matheson was able to excel academically allowing him to enter college early and graduate with honors at age 19. 
Despite his deteriorating eyesight, uh, Matheson, his future was bright because he graduated, he was excited about serving the Lord in ministry, and he was engaged to be married to his college sweetheart. Sadly, his heart was broken when she suddenly broke off their engagement, saying she did not wish to be the wife of a blind minister. Now, I would assume that he continued to pray for a wife in the years following this heartbreak, because on June 6, 1882, Matheson was 40 years old, so this is 20 years later. He was still unmarried, and he was attending his younger sister's wedding. Can you imagine how he felt? Lord, you and my younger sister's getting married for me. What's up with that? At one point during the evening festivities on June 6, 1882, he found himself all alone and deeply saddened and weeping, presumably by the memory of the love he had lost 20 years earlier and never found again. But in his grief, Matheson sat down and in five minutes wrote the lyrics to a hymn that has encouraged millions of believers ever since. Here's the first and third verses of the hymn, O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths it flow, may richer, fuller be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I climb the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain, that morn shall tearless be. Powerful words from a man who knew what it was like to be let down and let go by human love. But he knew the God who loved him had not stopped. You can have that kind of faith and experience that kind of love through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He died on the cross and resurrected himself three days later. So the repentant sinners could have that kind of love and that personal relationship with him. If you have questions about how to have a personal relationship with Jesus, I'd love to speak to you after this service. The Lord always remembers those who know his son because he's not capable of forgetting them. To forget is human, but to never forget is divine. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.